Welcome back, everyone, to our fourth installment of Indotechno. Indotechno is a weekly podcast in which we invite on guests to discuss all matters Indonesia and technology related. The podcast will be hosted in English with a subsequent transcript made available in Bahasa Indonesia. Kami akan memberikan transkrip podcast Bahasa Indonesia di situs web kami. My name is Alan Hallowell. I'm the host of Indotechno. I'm also the founder of Gizmo Advisors and serve as venture partner at Alpha JWC Ventures. Having last week discussed weighty issues such as the state of Indonesia's educational sector and the promise of technology in advancing the country's prospects with Najila Shihab of Sekolamu, this week it's literally all fun and games. Today we'd like to explore Indonesia's esports industry. And who would be better positioned to address this opportunity than one of the first and most diversified esports platforms? Evos Esports. I'm pleased to have on Ivan Yo and Hartman Harris, co-founders of Evos Esports. First, gentlemen, congratulations on having secured the largest number of esports championships in the Southeast Asian region last year. It clearly involved a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and arthritic thumbs, I suppose. So, gents, let's take it from the top. Kindly share with us your respective backgrounds. Maybe starting with you, Ivan. I think before starting uh, with esports, I was in the uh, investments industry, and right off college, I was in working for uh, AVN, Barclays, and I guess after a while, went to work for a family office where I spearheaded projects in Japan and Cambodia. While doing those, I guess the opportunity came up with my high school friends. You know, since young, we always we always had this interest for esports. So we came together, started Evos, you know, as a side hobby and side hustle, and I guess it took us to where we are today. You know, one year in, saw an attraction, and decided to work on it full time, and have never looked back. Fantastic, Hartman. What about yourself? During my era, a lot of my peers were were actually going to school in Singapore. So I grew up in Singapore all throughout uh, until the age of 16 and then went to college and spent some time there after college working in, in, in the finance industry as well. And then afterwards, coming back, working in uh, the family business, mainly in manufacturing, and then moving on, like Ivan said, one day I got a call from one of our other co-founders, Mike. Uh, he was like, let's start a startup together, right? At the time, I think the whole notion of startups and, and whatnot and investing is very foreign to me because I wasn't really aware or in tune with the VC space. And then from there, I, we, we grew. I think a lot of where the DNA of the company stems from how we are not very startup-y. Can you guys profile your major business lines for us? We started off with Evos as the esports main esports arm, the organization, the team, the professional esports side. And then we also have WIM, uh, which deals mainly in talent management. We do a lot of content formats as well. So where we're headed essentially is more of an esports plus, a more wholesome approach to the whole esports entertainment business instead of just focusing on the teams. Gotcha. So from what you're describing, esports, if successfully implemented, is more of an amalgam of activities, whether it's an agency business, cultivating teams. I assume you have a merchandise business, but there's there's quite a bit of horizontality to it. Is that correct? 
yeah, the big part of us is not thinking the, of the industry as like which sorts of business lines that we would want to enter, right? I think mainly it's more of what sorts of different touch points we can engage with our fan base. So as you mentioned, uh, merchandise, and even with merchandising, uh, we thought of it as more of a line of clothing that people would wear on a day-to-day instead of something that you would only wear on, on game days. So it, it was more built as streetwear sort of fashion, hype beast type of feel. And again, with all our content, uh, we, we try to take esports and gaming and all of its goodness into the next level, which is the esports plus the content side, what people want to watch and things like that. Ivan, anything you want to add to that? Uh, essentially, we are a esports entertainment company. So not just esports, but leveraging off esports large audience base and exploring other forms of content in our region as well. Tell us about your gaming houses. What locations do you have? And in particular, what's happened to them in the COVID-19 era? Well, I mean, most of our players still stay in the gaming house. So not too much impact with regards to like existing teams. Only small issues here and there with players flying in from their hometowns. So unfortunately, during the Ramadan period, most of them weren't able to go back home for the safety of the family and for themselves. But I mean, you know, gaming is still a digital uh, activity. So it doesn't really impact on training and everything, right? Instead of Discord, instead of, the game's all online, so it's still fine. Could one of you profile one of your more prominent team players, kind of give us some more interesting color on him or her? I guess one of our more prominent ones is uh, Dylan Froese. He has right now, I think, 9 million subscribers. And uh, he's very engaged with the Free Fire community, which... I'm sure you are uh, very familiar with. That's one of our most popular players in Indonesia. And why do people follow him? Is it because of his record? Is it because of his flair? What do you think drives the fandom around him? He's one of our largest content creators. So he creates content around Free Fire games and other gaming content. People generally watch him for his uh, entertainment factor. So comedy, drama, that kind of stuff. For us, uh, we have two different kinds of influencers. So one of it is your content creator, like Dylan Pros. So your classic YouTuber that creates content and builds his fan base based on the content he creates. On the other end of the spectrum, we have influencers like One. He's a professional esports player. People watch him because he's uh, very good at the game. And on top of that, he's also very entertaining to watch. So, I mean, two different kinds of influencer for different kinds of audience base. Interesting. So in the esports era, there's a broadening in the definition of influencer. In traditional sports, in my mind, influencers would be the athletes themselves. But in the online era, it's not just the athletes. It's other personalities that serve to enhance content, as you say, and build community. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think in sports... It's hard for a professional athlete to transition to a YouTuber. That's kind of far off the spectrum, right? But in esports, because everything is digital, and the rise of game streaming and gaming content allows most of the professional players to be to also be YouTubers as a profession. Makes sense. You mentioned that you work with top developers such as Tencent, Garena, and Moonton. What's the nature of your collaboration? 
for the most part, because we're in their ecosystem, we compete in their leagues. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, definitely a lot of back and forth, a lot of ideas coming uh, from us, from them as team owners and them as publishers or developers, league owners. So definitely from, from that standpoint and also developing their next generation of, I would say, influencers right? or, or their, their face or poster boy for their next game. So I think that is very important because a lot of the times developers or publishers, one of their biggest fears is actually no one talking about their games. Having constant flow of content from influencers or from other mainstream stars coming in to play uh, Mobile Legends or like Free Fire recently having Jota Slim, one of the hottest Indonesian stars, who is also a Hollywood star. You know, he played in a, in a lot of movies as well. So those kinds of interactions are very important for game developers, for their brand, for their league, so that it ups their brand equity, right? So it's not seen as a, a lame game. What are the juiciest parts of the esports revenue pie in your mind? I would say that the one that is starting to come up or came up, two of it, right? One of it is media rights sharing. So sharing from the sale of exclusive streaming deals or sale to TV mainstream station. I think that's a very interesting revenue that's coming up as, especially right now during the coronavirus, there are not much sports IP out there that's actually having their links in operation. So a lot of the traditional TV is interested in esports as a way to fill up the sports slots. The second one is, of course, in terms of uh, in-game items. So as the industry develops more and more, developers are also opening up their platforms to team IPs to create and sell items within the game itself. And that's looking like a potentially big opportunity and new revenue stream for teams. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Evos has a large membership base. Uh, are you building a subscription business? And what do you think the opportunity is there longer term? For our Evos membership, the initial thought or idea was to give access to a lot of our fans' values because we work with a lot of partners as well. What we're trying to push is trying to give a more inclusive ecosystem whereby they can always have more value when they buy a certain thing from our partner sponsors or whatever. I think another part is also providing access into our behind the scenes or backstage where a lot of things can't be seen uh, under normal circumstances. Another part is also how can we create an NBA-like or EPL-like atmosphere when they come to the stadium and watch us play? We want to create that sort of fandom. Uh, I think we, we sort of proved that in the last season two seasons ago when we won in indoor stadium. So it was like 10,000 people in the stadium. It was another 10,000 outside watching in the parking lot and everyone was cheering with the drums and, and everything. So we want to up that level because at the end of the day, that's what we are, right? We are storytellers. We are people who are trying to tell a story for people who are your hero. Looking at esports, uh, our thought process is how can we create a membership program without having a stadium, but still benefit our stakeholders, being the fans, the brands, and of course, the players themselves. So I guess there's a lot of room for innovation in the esports space. No one has really established the right go-to model for this industry. And our perspective is to test and experiment 
new ways to enhance the experience of our stakeholders. So the membership initiative, I wouldn't say that right now it can bring in the subscription revenue, but it's something that we're working towards too. So exploring different value propositions for our stakeholders and eventually building a product that hopefully could bring in the subscription revenue that we so desire. Now, guys, from the outside, it would seem as though esports has been massively impacted by the pandemic. For instance, nearly all public events have been called off. A, what parts of esports have indeed been hurt badly? B, which parts has COVID-19 actually benefited? And C, what new areas have you guys entered or begun to examine as a result of the pandemic? As with any crisis that has happened in the last decade, everything has its own drawbacks and has also create and also create its own opportunity. So there's two sides of the coin here, right? On one side, you're losing out on offline events. So your your sponsorship products, your advertising products, you're you're no longer selling a online to offline model. It's just online. However, on the plus side, considering that esports and games are played digitally and YouTube and everything is all digital, and pretty much everyone right now is on their phones getting the entertainment that they want. What we see is viewership in terms of content and in terms of view- and, uh, streaming has grown significantly. Obviously, there's pros and cons in the business. The question is, how are you utilizing this search in viewership to open up your monetization model with digital campaigns? So I think for a long time, especially in Southeast Asia, if you look at advertising spend, Pretty much 80% is still spent on traditional ads, meaning your mainstream TV, your billboards, and the likes of those, where 20% is spent on digital campaigns. So we're using this opportunity to educate and convert that traditional budget into digital. So we're doing more like digital content, digital events, community engagement events to attract the traditional budget to come into the digital side of things. So, you know, we are losing out on some, but we are also getting more on the digital side. I think this is a really good time, actually, for, for a lot of the brands to engage with the younger audience, uh, millennials, Gen Zs, who are really hyper-engaged, and they really want to send out a message that, hey, you know, uh, we're here for you, we are part of your interests, hobby, we support this and that, and we can be part of your lives. Nico Partners estimates that 90 to 95% of PC and mobile gamers in Southeast Asia already play esports. A, is this even true? And B, if it does, does it also mean that our best days of growth are behind us? Games in general has changed uh, over the last couple of years. Four years ago, majority of the gamers are male, right? You know, if you look at our data, it's all like 90% male, 10% or less female. But what we are seeing right now is the rise of the female gamer. It's becoming more of a social gaming experience whereby even when people meet up in person to have lunch and dinner, before the food comes, they might still play a game of Mobile Legends or Free Fire or PUBG Mobile. So I wouldn't really call it as a gaming industry right now, but I call it more as an entertainment industry where gaming is a form of entertainment that majority of people are using these days. So I think there's some merit to that. Uh, 50%, I don't know what the exact number is, but I would say it's close to mainstream right now. 
I don't think the growth is behind us because a lot of people are still very eager to play and to spend on the platforms. I think if you look at the game developers' numbers in the last couple of months, pretty much every single game company has grown tremendously as everyone has been knocked down and stuck at home. And the only entertainment they have is either content streaming, content viewership, or games. I think that's going to be our next wave of growth. As all these uh, occasional viewers of esports delve deeper into the game and become bigger fans of the game itself. Uh, let's focus on Indonesia. How quickly is it growing for Evos? How does it rank across the markets in which you guys operate? I would say right now, Indonesia is still our largest market. But I think by end of this year, you'll, you'll see Indonesia and Thailand being on par with each other. In terms of growth, look at the Mobile Legends Professional League. You know, when we started, peak viewership was around 40,000, 50,000. Last year, it peaked at around 500,000. And just in the last season, two, three months ago, two months ago, peak viewership was at 1.2 million, not including traditional TV stations. The growth season over season has been tremendous, more than doubling every single season. So I think the demand and interest for competitive esports tournament, it's definitely on the rise. On the other side of the coin, in terms of risk, just to set the stage, in China over the past 20 years, we've seen a bit of a love-hate relationship emerge between the regulator and the country's gaming platforms. In 2007, for instance, the government forced the game's platforms to install quote-unquote anti-addiction software, which limited gameplay each day. In early 2018, it halted new game approvals. I guess my question is, does Indonesia and Southeast Asia more generally face a growing risk that the region's parents, who maybe are distressed at all of the hours their children play games and thus don't focus on homework, that these parents appeal to the government to crack down on, on excessive gaming? I think on the government side, uh, there's a lot of support. I mean, that's why you have the first ever President's Cup using esports. It's been the second time right now, uh, last year. So there's a lot of support. A lot of education has to be done because a lot of people look at some esports athletes and think that they're having it so easy because they're just playing games a couple hours a day and they can make huge amounts of money. It's the same thing throughout all prof professions is that what they don't see is that they spend hours and hours and hours really training, literally training uh, their skills and things like that. So I think education has to be a huge part. So I think to add on to that, the public perception of gaming has changed tremendously in the last, I would say, one year. One year ago, the World Health Organization published an article talking about how gaming leads to gaming and addiction. However, just fast forward one year, two months ago, they published a similar article saying, we advise people to play games during this lockdown to prevent feelings of loneliness and to ensure social activity is still present amongst each other. And that kind of shows the change in mentality towards games. Yeah, I think counter to what a lot of people think, gaming these days are very, very social. A lot of people meet online and they become really close friends. I think moderation is very important, just like any other thing in life. So, so they did studies in Korea, actually, right? about the differences in professional athletes, esports athletes versus 
people who are addicted to game. Professional athletes, when they hook their brains up to a monitor, they could tell that they treated it as a job. Say a nine to five, and then they're training vigorously. 501, they clock out. They just hang out with friends and whatever. The differences with that and people who are addicted is that they, they can't clock out. And they're not inherently training to be better, but they're just addicted to the world that has been created around them inside the game. Something a lot of our players face, cyberbullying, I think is, is a huge, huge thing, especially for a lot of these teens or younger millennials, Gen Z, where they still get cyberbullied. They still get criticized heavily and it's unfairly. And that leads them to a huge, huge downward spiral and just reading the comments and things like that. So that's very unhealthy. And so that's what we actually help them with as well. Yeah, that's the other side of the spectrum. So I mentioned about brand love just now. And esports can help you to create um, fans' love for yourself. But on the other side of it, because it's such an emotional thing watching someone lose, it also creates a lot of hate. You know, when fans have, when fans pour their heart in supporting you and you kind of disappoint them, essentially that leads to hate. So a lot of these people actually follow them and quote unquote grew with them. So they're like your boy next door, girl next door type of person that became big. And so you are invested not only your time, but also emotionally in these people. Whereas say David Beckham or like Shaq or Kobe, you're only engaged with them after they're in the NBA, in the league. And then when they're out, you don't really have any chance of interaction or anything. Guys, what excites you most about esports in Indonesia as you look into the future? I think right now, even though mobile penetration is really, really high, I would say a lot of people still don't have really good internet. I think that's one of the things that excites me because that's a huge, huge growth potential over there. So in terms of, say, content or more people playing games and more people being able to interact with us is what excites me for esports in the whole Southeast Asia market, actually. When, when we started this company, our company vision that we set for ourselves was to turn dreams into reality and inspire the next generation. And after five years of talking to players and building players and grooming players, I actually directly see the impact that gaming and esports have done to our players themselves. A lot of them come from really unfortunate backgrounds, but because they, are, they have the ability to play a game well, it has completely tra- transformed their lives and turned them to the role models that they are today. So aside from the industry growth, what I'm very excited to see is how, how many more people can we impact and how many more dreams can we build for the future generations. People that dream to pursue their careers in the arts, in gaming, in content creation. I'm very excited to see what we can do for them and pave the way to build their dreams for the future. Very mission-based statements. I, I really appreciate that. Well, this concludes our fourth installment of Indotechno. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ivan and Hartman. As always, we welcome any and all other feedback on the show. My email is alan at gizmoadvisors.com. That's alan at gizmo-advisors.com. Please do also visit our website at indo-techno.com, indo-techno.com, if you'd like to be put on our mailing list for new episodes. The podcast was translated from English to Bahasa Indonesia by Alpha JWC Ventures. Terima kasih untuk mendengarkan. Sampai jumpa lagi. 